So those of you who have been around for the last few weeks, you know that we just concluded a series on the book of Jonah. And uh, one of the, the things about the book of Jonah was that Jonah had this incredibly comfortable and amazing lifestyle and career. Everything was going exactly the way he intended it to go. And God disrupted his life and called him to something fresh. I had been thinking a lot about that uh, in our context, in my context, and you know how God is operating at Trinity. And, and a few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go to a luncheon that was held at Fifth Avenue Press uh, by the Bowery. And the Bowery was sharing some of the things that they have been doing around the city. And while I was there, I had the opportunity to sit in a table, and next to me was a guy by the name of Craig Mays. And Craig and I started talking, and I was asking him, you know, what is happening in your life? What brought you to New York City? And he said, well, I had this amazing career in the Detroit area. I was pastoring a very large church. My life was comfortable. Everything was going really, really incredibly well. It was almost exactly the way I had intended things would go. And then the Lord disrupted my life. And he did something that completely changed my life and moved me into a different direction. And I thought, wow, this is a very familiar theme that I've been really thinking a lot about. And as we were talking a little bit more, uh, I invited Craig uh, to come and share his story today as part of our message today. And so at this point, Craig, if you would come up. Uh, I don't want to steal his thunder, so I won't tell you the story. But this is Craig Mays. Craig uh, is working with the New York City Rescue Mission, which has recently merged with the Bowery. And there are some exciting things happening, and I'm sure Craig could give us all the details yeah. as he shares with us today. I'm thrilled that you're here. We're grateful to have you, and we're excited to hear from you. Awesome. Thanks, Craig. Thank you so much. Uh, I didn't know I came to Nineveh. <laughs> I, I guess that's one way of... One way of thinking about it, but uh, and the moral of the story is be careful who you sit next to at lunch, because I was asking him questions about Trinity because I knew you were in transition and I, I know about this church and this great historic church and and so at, by the end of the conversation he said what are you doing on February 11th, and I said well I think I'm coming to Trinity uh, to share so um, just a, as we start thank you worship team uh, just amazing just uh, drawing us to the beauty of God and His love. Uh, that opening song, if you got here late, you missed, uh, they, were, they were praying for rain. I think we got that answered, um, but actually for God to pour out his spirit from heaven. But one of the themes of that song, which is going to connect really well with what I want to share with you today, uh, had to do with the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, that we, we would pray and ask that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I don't know, you know, when something gets familiar, sometimes we stop thinking about what that means. But, you know, think about how, to what extent is God's will being done in heaven? It's an easy answer. To what extent is God's will being done on earth? And clearly, this is a broken planet that we live on. This is a broken city. There are broken people scattered throughout earth. And that prayer uh, is, I believe, supposed to be more than just a prayer. That we sit in our churches or in our, the quietness of our homes or apartments, and we pray that God's will will be done on earth, and then we walk out into the earth, and we see all kinds of situations where his will is not being done, and I believe that that prayer is a mandate to step into the brokenness of the world 
with our lives. So essentially, I'm going to unpack the journey that I went on. And um, the church in Michigan, we had three services on Sunday morning, and they were always on the pastor about making sure he didn't go too long because we had to clear out the parking lot. Well, I assume we don't have that problem here. So I can go as long as I want to go, right? There's no, like, get the cars out. They get the, no, I understand we're on a schedule. So um, what I'm going to do essentially is I'm going to share a few stories, uh, a couple from Scripture and a few from my life to show how they intersect and really to share the journey that I've been on. And the only value in doing that, because I'm on, there's nothing important about me, so I'm not here to talk about my life except that I hope that there's something in my journey over the last 20 years especially that you can relate to or maybe God is speaking into your life. Maybe it's an extra nudge this morning or maybe it's a brand new thought for you if you're a relatively new follower of Jesus. But before I dive in, I have to say one thing. Um, so the Bowery Mission uh, was founded in 1879 in New York City. The New York City Rescue Mission was founded in 1872. So for a long time, these two missions have been doing the work uh, of God serving the poor in New York City. And We've worked the last two years to decide, why don't we just work together? So we're coming under one umbrella, and I'm really excited about that. And the current president and CEO of the Bowery Mission, i, I got to tell you a little story about him. So in 1998, he was a partner at, at KPMG. You all know that big accounting firm? And uh, he, wasn't, he, he was raised in a home uh, where there was no talk of God. He would have described himself as an atheist at that time. But at his office, uh, he, he became interested in another staff member, a woman, and was asking her out on dates, and she wouldn't go out on a date, but she invited him to church. And in 1998, Dave Jones came into this church, drawn here by a woman from this congregation, but heard the gospel and gave his life to Jesus. Isn't that amazing? So to think right now, this man is leading an organization that ministers to over a 1,000 homeless men, women, and children every single day in the city, and he found Christ in this very auditorium. So you never know who's in the building, and who God is calling you to minister to and the kind of change that will come is about it. So we just, I just wanted to celebrate that with you this morning. Now, a story, very familiar story. We're going to jump in the middle of it. I assume most of you know this story. Consider these words. Jesus is telling a parable. He says, now by chance a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, now who did he see? A man who was beat up and left to die. He saw him, and he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, and he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion, and he went to him. And as we know the story, he very sacrificially cared for this man. So the title of my message is, Who Do You See? I'm going to ask you that question several times in the next 25 or 30 minutes. Who do you see when you walk through the city, when you get on the subway, when you traverse life and you see people, because we see people all the time, who do you see? Now, this story was told by Jesus in response to a question. The question was, who is my neighbor? And that question was asked because someone had asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment in and Jesus affirmed that the greatest commandment was to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. So the question, who is my neighbor, was meant to say, could we limit that? Like, what are the boundaries? There's a lot at stake in this conversation that Jesus was having because he's going to answer the question once and for all. When we're to love others, how do we define that? What are the boundaries 
who, can, who am I supposed to love and who is it okay if I don't love quite so much? Who is my neighbor? That was the question. And we know when we think about this parable, there were three characters, three individuals who walked down this road between Jerusalem and Jericho and we're told that all three of them saw, same word, each saw the man that was there left half dead. And yet there was one who must have seen something different because he did something different. The first two saw and we we're told they passed by on the other side and just let him be. The third person, the first was a Levite, the second was a, a, the first was a priest, the second was an expert in the law, the third was, we're not told except he was a Samaritan. They all three saw the same thing, a man who was going to die without help. Two found a way in their mind to justify walking by. One saw and then we're told the difference with him is it said we, it, we're told he had compassion. Compassion in his heart and so he went to him and he cared for him. I want us just to consider the, the question, what, what was it about, and it's not answered by the way in scripture, all we know is he had compassion, but what might have been going on in his heart and his mind? And as I read this story again, at this stage in my life, at age 62, I've probably preached uh, 20, 30 sermons on this over the years at various churches, and I know that I have, uh, for a large part of my life, been one who passed by. And I had all my reasons why justifications, and I didn't feel bad about it. What has shifted in my heart? Because that's why I'm in New York City, because I can't ba pass by anymore. And it's changed my life. What, is, what has made the difference? So I want to tell you something that happened uh, in the year, I think it was 1999. Uh, my children were ages 7 to 12 at the time. It was the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and it was exciting, exciting because we piled into the minivan and we're heading up to see Grandma and Grandpa and spend a few days for Thanksgiving. All the typical stuff around Thanksgiving. It was very exciting. We get on the road. It's very busy, as you know, traveling on Thanksgiving. It was only supposed to be about an hour trip. And as we're going down the interstate, <clears throat> it was still, I, I left early enough so we could try to avoid the traffic. So I'm going, um, the speed limit was probably 55. I'm probably going 65. So I'll just confess my sin right out front. I'm anxious to get there, going down the road. And as we came to an intersection of another interstate, the lanes on the right were backed up. But the lane I was in was clear and free, and so we're flying down the road, excited to get up to Grandma and Grandpa's and enjoy a few days. As we approached this um, intersection, these cars came, had come to a complete stop. But the lane I was in was free, and so I'm going pretty fast. Um, and I noticed, just happened to notice, that the car next to me, the driver was distracted. I'm trying to think, did we have cell phones back then? I can't remember when we got them. It, but the, they weren't paying attention. And at, right as we came up on to where the traffic was stopped, this car, going the same speed as me, hit that car at probably 65 miles an hour. And it was such an extraordinary moment because it felt like everything went into slow motion. Your brain is, is uh, operating faster than you can even process it. So I'm trying to keep us safe. I'm gripping the steering wheel, foots off the gas pedal on the brake. One car is hitting another car, so it's a chain reaction. It's boom, 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 <clears throat> as I'm slowing down. And my kids, <clears throat> excuse me, all watching this are screaming. My wife's sitting next to me. I don't think she was, well, she might have been screaming. And I'm, I'm just holding on the wheel thinking this is going to come over. This is not going to be good. And somehow we got past it. Heart beating 100 miles an hour, I pull off to the side of the road and just catch my breath. And I look in my mirror and all I can see is smoke. So I don't really have a plan, but I open to get out of the door. And my wife says to me, which says everything you need to know about me, don't do anything stupid. I, I wasn't sure what that would mean, but I knew I had to go back. I couldn't just leave the scene. So I go back, 
and I get uh, back a ways, and there's, there's got to be eight or ten cars that are all messed up now. And I stop, and I'm looking into this window of this car. And there's a woman, I can still see it, blonde hair, over the steering wheel, unconscious. And then I notice that there's fire all under her car. And fire here and fire there. And I'm frozen in place. She needs help. I, I've watched enough TV shows, I think cars blow up sometimes. And I'm only about 10 feet away, and so I'm frozen. This is probably only for a second or two. And I had an experience. It, it would be one of those moments that you look back later and you realize that something shifted in me. But in that moment, and this has to be the voice of God because this wouldn't have come on my own. As I was looking through the window at this blonde woman, God said, that's your daughter. And my daughter was only 10 at the time, up in the car, blonde hair, it's almost like she was transfigured in front of me, and that was my daughter. In that moment, there was no question what I was going to do. This is not about courage or bravery or being a hero. That's my daughter, and I don't care if the car blows up, I'm going to blow up with her. I can't leave her there. So I ran to the door, I pulled the door open. Right then, someone joined me. I didn't even notice anybody was around me. We reached in, we undid her belt, we pulled her out of the car, uh, we walked her, she's unconscious, we walk her over to the shoulder of the road, and set her down, and no sooner did we get her down than the blast, it exploded. It was so strong, it, I felt it against my back. I turned around, and there's flames, and there's smoke. I found out later that my kids were totally freaking out, because they saw, it was like, it was like a, a, an action hero movie. I wish someone, because it wasn't heroic, by the way. I was so afraid, but it had to look like the scene where I walked into the smoke, you know, and then a little bit later, I walked back out, and they were glad I was alive. But the point is that that moment changed when a stranger why don't you think about this? A stranger became someone that I love. Now, it's interesting, as I reflected on that, you know, that Thanksgiving, we got up eventually to our destination, and um, I just couldn't stop thinking about what I had seen, and I had trouble sleeping at night because of it, and I had, I don't know if it's a vision or not, I don't know if God gives you visions, I, I haven't had visions in life, but I had this thing I began to picture in my mind, and I think it was to take the lesson that he wanted me to learn and really seal it to my heart. And this is what I pictured. I pictured that when this accident happened, there was a father at home a few miles away that his daughter, adult daughter, was going to come for a visit. And he prepared a meal. And he was looking at his watch. And she was late. But she was late occasionally, so he wasn't concerned. And so while he was waiting, he turned the TV on, sat down, turned on the news. Now see if you can picture this with me. This is, I saw it so vividly in my mind. He's watching the news, and they say there's a breaking story. There's been a horrible accident on I-696. And we, they had a helicopter flying over, and so the helicopter zoomed in. I saw this very clearly. And, of course, this couldn't actually happen. But as the helicopter zoomed in, he's, he leaned forward, and he saw that that was his daughter's car, and he saw her slumped over. And the, the camera view was looking over my shoulder at it. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? I'm seeing this. Now, if that actually happened and that father could speak to me, what would he say? What would he offer me to take those 10 steps and open the door and pull her out of the car? He would give every single thing that he owns because that's his daughter. So I saw this almost vision very vividly, and then this is a question God asked my heart, and I want to ask you today. He said, do you understand that I feel that way about every single human being on planet earth what that father would feel for his daughter what you would feel for your daughter 
my heart, God said, was saying to me, my heart feels that way and breaks over every single human being. But the way I've designed it is I'm the father in the living room looking over your shoulder and asking you, would you help my will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Because that's how I've chosen to operate and to act. We say it all the time. We are his hands. We are his feet. Literally in that moment, I had to be his hands to go, his feet to go to the car, his hands to pull her out of the car. Shortly after this, and this is a little bit what I was sharing with James at, at lunch, seven, eight months after this, I got invited to go to India. And my daughter, growing up, she was 11 now at this time, had just for some reason had this fascination with India. Um, it looks at parents and grandparents that are here today. As, you're, as these kids grow, they get these crazy ideas, and you don't know where it came from. And you, you come to know often that's God speaking into their heart, even when they're young. So after all this India, India, India over all these years, I get invited to go to India and to bring my daughter. So we ended up in India just less than a year after this event happened. And we were going there to meet a man who was planting churches. At the time, he had planted 50 or 60 churches um, in villages. But when I got there, what happened to me, really through my daughter, was I got broken by the poverty. This man had brought in about 35 children at that time off the street, rented a building across from his home, was trying to care for them. And my daughter, seeing their condition, that's all she wanted to do is go be with them, play with them. We would sit on her bed at night, and she would cry and weep, and she'd say, this isn't right, what are we, we got to do more, how can we help them? And as we went through the city there, we would see all these children, one, uh, two, three, four years old, naked, wandering the village because they had no home. And so we got back from that trip, and my life was wrecked. That's the event that wrecked my life. That was the moment where um, God redirected. Now, it took me a while because I was a little bit like Jonah. I was hearing God, and I was saying, no, no, I'm, I'm at that time now almost 50 years old. My life is settled. I can see the trajectory. I'm at this church. It's growing. I live in the suburbs. I got a nice house. I got cars. I, got, I, I love the outdoors. I have windsurfer and kayaks and mountain bikes, and that's my life. And when he began to speak to us about New York City to come and really focus on the poor, um, it was like it didn't make any sense to me, except my heart was changing. And I was beginning to feel maybe what he feels. And it, the, that event, that accident was a catalyst. India really sealed it because I couldn't get him out of, out of my mind. And, and actually, in five days, I'll be leaving for India. And I encourage the announcement that, that you shared about Rwanda, if you haven't done that, it goes... It, it stops being about numbers and statistics and becomes people. It changes your life. This will be my 20th trip to India now. We've now built an orphanage and a school and a hospital. I, I, I say we. I, I don't know even how God has done it. But that was a catalyst. But it took me a number of years to actually get where I could surrender everything. And, and what I'd like to do is share a little bit about that journey, how that came about. I had a life that needed to be wrecked. In my early 40s, I had come to the realization that... <clears throat> I had degrees that told, would tell you, if you came into my study at my church, that I knew about God. Because I had degrees to prove that. I knew the Bible really well. I was teaching the Bible. I was <clears throat> an expert in God, so I thought. But I had come to the realization that <clears throat> maybe I didn't really know him. <clears throat> you know, it's easy to know about someone and not know them. I mean, think about those of you that are married. I mean, Chris, right now, my wife and I co-lead a church that is about 95% homeless, and they'll start at 11 o'clock this morning. I wish we had your band and worship leaders. A band's made up of homeless men and women, so we don't know if they're going to show up necessarily. But <clears throat> the, uh, 
the reality is that I didn't really feel like I knew God, like I knew my wife. I mean, can you imagine if my wife's name is Chris? This is really a silly illustration. Please bear with me. What if we? What if I got together once a week and <clears throat> someone gave a lecture on Chris or a talk, and then we sang songs about her? And then there was a there was a book called the Book of Chris, and we would study it and break into small groups and have discussions, right? <clears throat> I would give all that up for one minute with her. And that's what I began to understand, that there's a, a difference. In fact, I realized, and I'm going to give you this challenge. As you read scripture, every time it talks about knowing God, see if you don't insert the word in your mind, about. Like there's one of the verses in, in this season of my life that God used was in Jeremiah, where he, he makes this claim. He said that actually it's going to be a different verse in Jeremiah. So let's you take that one off the screen. <clears throat> that's my punchline later. In Jeremiah, he says, don't let a wise man boast of his wisdom, or a rich man in his riches, or a strong man in his strength. If any man will boast, let him boast about this. This is going to be an amazing statement, because God's giving us permission to boast about something. Put this on your tombstone. You can brag about this. And here's what he says. Let him boast that he understands and knows me. Not about me, that he knows me. So I began to cry out to God and asking God to reveal himself to me. I want to know you. That became a simple prayer. What is that like, God? What is it like to actually know you, to have that intimate relationship like you can have with another person, to not have information about you, but to actually know you deep in my heart? And I began to see that it was all over Scripture. The invitation to know him, not about him, but to know him. And so as I began to ask God daily to show me what that would look like, he, I feel looking back over the last 20 years, it's like a trail of breadcrumbs, and one of those was coming to New York City. He would give me opportunities that I would have to take the step, and he would reveal more of himself to me, and it would be an experience of knowing his heart. And as I began to go down that path more and more, my heart was drawn to the poor and the marginalized. To not be a man who walks by. By the way, don't walk by next, if you haven't signed up. I've been to the first two. Um, the first week was downtown, and I want to tell you, just honestly, even with all this, after serving um, 10 hours that day, setting up for don't walk by and helping execute it, and it was late at night, and I was tired, and my wife texted me and said, bring home some chocolate ice cream. And so I grabbed some, and I'm walking down the sidewalk on Houston Street, and there was a man totally passed out on the sidewalk that I not only passed on the other side of the street, I stepped over him and kept walking. I got about 10 feet away, and the voice said, God's voice said, no, you can't do that. And I said, really? But I've served you all day long. I've been helping the poor all day long. I do it vocationally. It's my job. Can I just get the ice cream home to my wife? No, I had to go back, call 911, stay there until they got there, and and whatever. So this, you know, this, we, we never stop learning and listening to the voice of God. James wrote that religion that God finds pure and undefiled. Think about that statement. I memorized that verse. I taught sermons on it. He says, what God's looking at when he looks at religion, and there's more than this, but it, that, that you would care for orphans and widows in their distress. And I realized at age 50, I'd never done one thing for an orphan or a widow. How is that possible? As a pastor, so God was speaking to me plainly, and then this verse, now we can put the Jeremiah verse up. I want you to consider the weight of this verse. This one really struck me. He's talking about why Josiah was a great king. This is God speaking to the prophet, and he, here's what he says about Josiah. He defended the cause of the poor and needy, and so all went well with It would be awesome if it stopped there, but now here's what God says. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord. Think about the weight of that. God is saying that if you know me, you will care for the poor and needy. 
But by implication, if we don't, it means we don't really know him. And here's why I believe that's the case. When you know someone and you love someone, you begin to love what they love. I remember when I fell in love with Chris, and we were dating and not engaged yet, the very first Christmas, um, I was broke. I was like dirt poor. I had no money, and it's Christmas time, and I want to buy her something. Well, I learned that she loved the color purple. So I went to the stores and malls and bought every little purple thing I could, a pencil, an eraser, an ink pen, something for her hair, and filled a stocking with purple stuff. Why do you do that? Because when you know someone you love, I don't care about the color purple at all. In fact, I don't even like it. Don't tell her I said that. But... When you love someone you, and know someone, you begin to gravitate toward what they love. And so as you get to know God, as I got to know God and my love for him grew and my experience of his love for him grew, I began to care more deeply what he cared about. I began to see what he sees. Who do you see? Who do the Levites see? Who do the priests see? You know, we really judge them, yet, yet I do that all the time. I justify. They had important business to get to. They couldn't be late for their appointment. They were going to do great ministry in Jericho. They had to get there. I've been there. But this Samaritan saw something different. We don't, it's not told in the story, but I have to believe that somehow he saw through the eyes of God. He saw God looking over his shoulder, seeing this man on the side of the road, saying, I have to do something. He saw, he saw his own son there, perhaps, in his mind. And that's why he was compelled to action. You know, it, it's interesting that this passage, that people that are in my kind of work, that are in ministry, we often go to Matthew 25. When I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was sick, you took care of me. When I was in prison, you visited me. We all know that passage, right? Whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me, right? You know that Jesus is telling, this is near the end of Matthew, he's telling how this whole story is going to end. That's where this falls. He says, at the end of the age, when the Son of Man himself comes in all of his glory, this is not the carpenter with the sandals and the robe. This is the creator God. He says, when he comes in all of his glory, he's going to gather all the nations. He's going to gather all the angels. He's going to sit on a throne. So try to picture that. This is the future event that's going to happen. And he's going to have one last conversation because this is a pregnant moment when he's going to bring in the new heaven and new earth. And now it will be totally glorious. All redemption. All restoration. But before that happens, he gathers everybody together and says, let's have one last conversation. And what does he want to talk about? Not what version of the Bible was the best, as important as that is. Not what style of worship music was the best. Not which denomination got it the most right. He wants to have, and he will have, one last conversation about what did you do with the poor, the marginalized. This is not fringe stuff. This is not extracurricular activity. This is central to the work of the gospel. The work to care for our neighbors, members of our community, our strangers who are struggling in poverty and homelessness and hunger finish with one last story. I think I'm near the end of my time, right? I can, I can go on a lot longer, but I'm not going to. This, this just seals it for me when I think about the opportunity that we have to truly be the hands and the feet of God, but we have to have the eyes of God and we have to have the heart of God. That's, the, that's what has to motivate it. Not a duty or an obligation. Have you learned in your life that duty is a poor motivator? Obligation is a poor motivator. Love is the only motivator that will that will stand the test of time, that will actually compel us into action to leave the suburbs of Detroit and come to Nineveh. It's the only thing that will do that. But let me finish with this story. I'm going to tell you a story um, of, and I have to give you the brief version, of a family that immigrated to the United States. And this was a while ago, so they actually came into the harbor, they went through Ellis Island, and they were coming to the land of opportunity. And his name was Art, and they had two young daughters, and they were so excited to show up in America. And as was the case always, it was oversold. 
there wasn't riches just waiting for them. They were in poverty. They had to work hard. They suffered and struggled a lot. They actually immigrated uh, to another place pretty quickly in the United States. But what they discovered was that um, actually Art, Art was the son's name. And Art was brilliant. And he had opportunity for education. So he went to school, got all A's, graduated from high school, top of his class. Um, there wasn't money for college at that time. He, they didn't have it. So he went into the workforce. He got married at age 18. He was working in a factory. Within a year or two, they realized this guy was so smart he could fix anything when it broke. And so he's moving up. His salary's moving up. They're moving up. Second generation immigrants are doing really well. Um, they had two daughters right away. Things looked great. But a few years into this, the pressure of the work, Art began to um, stop on his way home at the bar and just have a drink or two with his buddies, which became five or six, which became too many, which became him not coming home till three in the morning, eventually not coming home at all on the weekends when he get his paycheck, which became evictions from apartments for not paying the bills, which became unemployment, which became homelessness, which became the mother and daughters moving into the projects and, and really struggling. And Art is gone and he's lost on the street for a very, very long time, in and out of shelters, rehab, nothing's working, he's just gone, he's AWOL. Daughters grow up, they get married young just to get out of the home, start their own families. And then one time Art stumbles for the thousandth time probably into the rescue mission and he hears a story that God loves him, even in all the brokenness that he's brought into his own family. Why this time? No one knows, but he surrendered to the love of God and everything began to change. His wife had never divorced him because she had no money for a lawyer. They got reconciled. He got reconciled with his daughters. He has now grandkids. And there was one grandkid in particular that he took to, and he, this grandkid, uh, eight years old at the time, loved to fish. So Art would make the trip to visit the family. He would rent a little boat, take his grandson out into the boat as the sun was coming up, put the worm on the hook, put it in the water. But while they were trying to catch fish, he would tell stories from the Gospels. He was still smart. He practically memorized the Gospels. So he would say things like, remember the time when Jesus was in the sea with um, his disciples, some of whom were fishermen, and the storm came up, and they were all terrified? Remember the time when they caught all those fish? And he would just tell stories to his grandson. And then when he was in his 60s, he passed away. He had abused his body for many years, and so he had a massive heart attack, died quickly. <clears throat> now, if I stop there... Um, say, well, that's a great story of redemption and the kind of work that we do at the rescue mission. <clears throat> now, I want to ask, does anyone know the art that I'm talking about? And you don't. You couldn't possibly know. But when I tell you the name of the eight-year-old that he took fishing, all of you are going to know his name. Everyone. Because his name is Craig Mays. That's my grandfather. I can close my eyes and I can hear his voice. I can picture his smile. I can hear his words about Jesus, the influence he had on me. It's amazing through the years that I got my grandfather. But let me ask you this question tonight. Actually, in just a half hour, there'll be about 180 to 100 uh, homeless men and women coming into our church called Communitas. My wife will be leading it today. We take turns. Um, some of them will fall asleep snoring. Some of them will smell like they've been drinking all night because they have. Who do you think I see? I see my grandfather. Actually, I see more than that. I see he's got a grandson he doesn't even know. He's not a stranger. There are no strangers. They're all neighbors. 
And God has called us, as we grow to know him, to truly be his hands and his feet, to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. His will would be done. So, Lord, I just pray that something I've shared today will be helpful to a congregation I don't really know, but I know they desire to know you and follow you. Thank you for the work that they do. I, I pray for those who will be involved and don't walk by next week, that you'll make that experience powerful for them and that we will reach um, men and women in this neighborhood, in this part of New York City, that need food, they need shelter, um, they need to know of your redemptive grace. So I pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you. We have the opportunity now to come to the table. And uh, at Trinity, we have four stations, two in the front and two in the back. And 